Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. Thanks for joining us today. We're getting a lot of positive feedback about Open Your Eyes podcasts, so welcome to all of you who have recently joined our podcast community. Our community of listeners is growing faster than expected, so thank you for sharing this podcast with your friends. And most of all, we're excited that you've made Open Your Eyes an important part of your inspiration time each week. If you want to find the home channel for Open Your Eyes, go to openyoureyes.org to find your podcast channel and then subscribe so you get automatic updates as they are released each Monday. Most of all, I hope when we're done today, you can see how to follow the right impressions in your life and make decisions for good. Let's get started. Several years ago, a few days before Christmas, just as it was getting dark, we loaded our three young kids in the car, including our seven-month-old baby, Mary, and headed 20 miles across town in northern Cincinnati. We were headed to a rather famous farm that had a large Christmas light display. We drove through the farm, enjoyed the lights, and headed home through the country roads just as the snow started to fall. It was a perfect holiday night, and Jennifer and I were looking forward to home and rest. It had been a long day. I was driving about 55 miles an hour on a winding country road when a car headed towards us in the distance came off a long winding turn and suddenly veered directly into our lane. Now, I don't know if you've ever been driving at a rapid speed and all of a sudden had a car drive into your lane and it's immediately obvious you are about to hit head on, but it is amazing how things slow down to a crawl as you try to react. I immediately knew there was nothing I could do that we were going to hit head on. I immediately knew it was likely one or more of my children was going to be seriously injured and worse. I immediately knew that my four-year-old and six-year-old were lying down in the back seat, and it was likely they had taken off their safety belts. I braked and veered to the right off the road as quickly as I could, but it was too late. The black Mustang GT slammed into the front left of our car where I was seated in the driver's seat. The front corner, engine, and my door took the majority of the impact. The car hit with such force, it knocked me silly. The airbags deployed and the windows all broke in pieces and our car lurched into the air and slammed back into the ground. And immediately, you could smell the smoke and everything for a few seconds was silent. The next sound was my six-year-old daughter screaming. I was not so silly that I could hear the sounds around me, but I couldn't open my eyes to react. It was like my mind wanted to react. I knew that I needed to check on my kids and wife, but my body just didn't work. While I was in this daze, I heard my wife unbuckle her safety belt and scramble back towards my daughter. What I didn't hear was the baby crying. Our baby Mary was completely silent. No sound. That probably meant she was not conscious. When I realized she wasn't crying, something pulled me out of my dizzy slumber. I opened my eyes, released my seatbelt, and turned to see how she was. Her car seat was upside down. Luckily, she was still in the car seat. And as I pulled the seat upright, broken glass fell everywhere. It filled her little car seat. Glass around her arms and legs. But despite all of that, when I sat her upright, she started to cry. That was a good sign. 
I checked her face, her arms and legs. Nothing seemed to be broken. And best of all, while she had scratches, no serious cuts. This was a huge relief. My four-year-old son, however, was not responding well. And my wife yelled at me from the back seat to go get help. Now, these were the days before cell phones. So I climbed out of the car. And when I did, I noticed that it was extremely painful to put weight on my left leg and that my neck was injured. I would learn later that I had a fractured lower leg and a serious neck injury, something that I deal with even today. Our van was in a ditch and pushed up against the fence on the side of the road. Now, after I got out, I noticed the other driver was wheels first in the ditch, a few hundred feet away from us, and trying to back his car out of the ditch, I assumed, so he could drive away from the scene. I went over to him and told him if he had enough wherewithal to drive his car, he should get out and walk down to the farmhouse nearby and call the police for help. My son was hurt. I hobbled back to the car, and as we huddled there in the cold winter's air, I still didn't know if my children were going to be okay. Soon the ambulance arrived, and they put me, my wife, baby Mary, and my older daughter in the ambulance to stay warm while they tried to extract my son, who was still lying in the back seat. They went through the back, cutting away part of the side of the van to extract Jared. Soon the back door of the ambulance opened, and there was Jared on the gurney with his head and neck taped down to keep his neck and head immobile. When they slid him into the ambulance, I expected him to be in tears or unconscious. But instead, he had this huge smile on his face. You see, the big TV show of the day was called Rescue 911. And we watched it now and then with Jared, and he loved fire trucks. So when he got a chance to interact with a fireman and be put in an ambulance, he was super excited. Then, to our surprise, the paramedics had put the driver of the other car on a gurney and slid him into our crowded ambulance to keep him out of the cold while we waited for a second ambulance to arrive. The minute he entered our airspace, it was obvious he had been drinking. As I sat there in the ambulance, I was filled with anger towards this person. I was going to make him pay. Whatever the police could do to punish him, I would encourage. Whatever I could do legally, I would do. He would pay. He'd almost killed my children. But the longer I looked at him, the more empathy I had for him. And the impression came to me that he was suffering. He was struggling in his life. We finally made it home from the hospital early the next morning, carried our sleeping children in the house and laid them down to sleep. We lived 2,000 miles from many family. We had no help. We were battled, bruised, and alone for Christmas. Jennifer and I could barely move. We were so sore. Everything hurt. When we woke up the next day, we were moaning and groaning and both sporting Miss USA ribbons. Our chest and stomach, where the seatbelts were buckled, we had these ribbons or bruises, and they were completely purple. We joked that we had won the prize. In fact, that is how we felt. On that special day, we had won the prize. We had walked away from the accident intact, with our family intact, and God had protected us. It's funny, you know, one view could have been that our holiday was ruined. No car. It was totaled. A son whose face looked like he'd been hit with a baseball bat. Inconvenience. Expense. And other issues came our way as a result of the accident. I had also had to decide what to do with the person who hit us. Encourage the police to file charges, file a lawsuit, or whatever else. But again, I had the impression to let it go. Let him be. 
Later, when it came time to settle with the insurance company, I remembered that impression. I didn't sue. I didn't complain. I let it go. And I stayed focused on the good things in my life. That impression has helped me throughout my life. I forgave others more easily after that. I mean, if I can forgive that guy for that, I can easily look past the little things, right? It's strange, but it's been a great strength to me, and I have more empathy for other people as a result. And while I'm far from perfect, following that impression has had a big impact on me. I've learned in life that following impressions is a skill that you can learn, like playing the piano. The more you watch and listen and follow impressions, the more you come to recognize the right impressions from the wrong and the more right impressions that come your way. And the funny thing is about impressions, you usually don't know if it is the right impression until after you've followed that impression. And usually following that impression takes some work and sacrifice. But this way of living, of following a hunch now and then, is the faith that makes life worth living. So what impressions do you follow? particularly when it comes to the weightier things in life, like what career should I pursue or who should I marry or should I start a new business? How do we find the right impressions to make better decisions? Well, the married couple had their birthday on the same day. So each year they celebrated their birthday together. And over the years, the ongoing debate was how to celebrate their birthday. She loved to travel. He hated it. So each year they would argue and he would always come out the victor and they would stay home to celebrate. This year they were both turning 40 years old and they started receiving presents from friends and family all over the world. Their great uncle who lived in the Middle East sent a package. And when the couple opened the box inside, they found an ancient oil lamp. And when they opened the lamp, a genie appeared and immediately declared they each had one wish. Well, the wife immediately wished for a 120-day cruise around the world with her husband. And poof, it was granted. Upset at being forced to travel, the husband quickly stated his wish. He said, if I have to go on a 120-day cruise around the world, then I wish to go with a beautiful, vivacious woman half my age. And poof, he was 80. (laughs) Too often, it seems our decisions are uninspired or unlucky or unable to bring us the joy we thought we would have after making them. Years ago, author and philosopher Joseph Campbell coined the phrase, follow your bliss. And since then, many experts have used the term follow your bliss to teach the principle of doing what makes you happy, finding what makes you tick or discovering your calling in life. An important part of happiness in life is finding and doing what makes us tick. But many of us still haven't figured it out, especially when it comes to earning a living. Some of us have learned how to earn, but we haven't found how to be happy while we're earning. Campbell said, when you follow your bliss, doors will open where you would not have thought there would be doors and where there wouldn't be a door for anyone else. When you find what you love to do, You can turn your focus away from just doing and toward being joyful while you're about your doing. That's when impressions come your way and that will open new doors in your life and business. There's a great feeling of peace that comes with moving towards what you love to do. As Jim Rohn taught, 
It's like a magnet. The more we define where we're headed, the better we can describe it. And the harder we work on it, the stronger its pull. I was talking to a smart middle-aged woman the other day, and she said to me, I'm just not happy with what I'm doing. I like my job, but I'm not passionate about it. I'm not excited to get out of bed each day and go to work. I wish I had a job doing what I love to do. And I asked her, what do you love to do? And she said, I'm not sure. And I replied, well, maybe that's part of the problem. You see, if you spend any time on college campuses, you'll find thousands of students trying to find the path they should follow in life. And I've noticed a common mistake made by college students. When asked what their purpose in life is, they answer the question in terms of what profession they're pursuing. I want to be an engineer or I want to be a teacher. But it's not your profession that determines your calling in life. It's what makes you tick. It's your talent. It's your passion. Perhaps you're good at building relationships of trust and connecting with people. That talent can be used in any one of a hundred different professions. What profession is not the question. What talent or interest is the question. And once you determine where your talent lies or what you're excited about doing, then you can determine how to use that talent in earning a living in many different ways. You see, so many of us are unhappy with our job or day's work, and we haven't asked the question, how do I put my talent to work in my current job or my current day's work? In the course of what you're already doing, is there opportunity to improve your people skills, your writing to serve and give to others? If so, maybe that is the impression to follow. Now, college students aren't the only group of adults struggling to discover their niche in life. Many of us in our midlife years are still asking the question, what am I meant to do? We've gone about the first half of our lives working without the joy we'd hope to find from our work. And as we go about finding the answer, we often make a common mistake. You see, weary in the struggle to provide for our families, we associate downtime with happy time. And we assume that if we had more ease, we'd be happier. But happiness is found in what we do not necessarily in doing less. Later in life, Joseph Campbell said if he could go back and do it over, he would have coined the phrase, follow your blisters instead of follow your bliss. Over time, Campbell noticed people had followed their bliss in a way that eliminated work and sacrifice from their life, when in fact, life experience teaches us it's in the work and sacrifice that we find what makes us happy. As a result, people hadn't found what made them happy when they followed their bliss. And he learned that the rich things in life, the stuff that really matters, comes from those times when we stretch the most. It's the work we do that brings satisfaction and happiness. Well, my experience is the same as Campbell's. I believe we're most happy when we're working at what we love to do. We get more joy when we have to give up a little sleep, stretch a few muscles, and help someone in the process. I've also learned that good work, work for things that really matter, is like a happy magnet. The more we move in that direction, the more we experience the pull of happiness. Jackson Brown said, find work that you like and you add five days to every week. So what were you meant to do? If you ask that question and think about the answer, chances are you'll think of helping people or making a difference for others or contributing to a cause bigger than your own. 
And chances are you'll think of owning your own business. Chances are you'll think like others who want to express their creativity, find greater independence, and rely on their own potential. In a recent Gallup poll, 61% of adults currently employed said, given the chance, they would own their own business rather than work for someone else. Why? Well, I think it's part of our nature. When we're about creating and teaching and constructing and exercising our own sense of leadership, I think we're happier. There really is a sense of purpose and bliss in owning your own business. Yet at the moment, only 10% of adults are self-employed. Now, 61% of adults say they want to own their own business. Then why don't they follow their bliss and do that? Well, maybe they don't know where to go or how to do it. Perhaps they don't have the capital or can't take the risk because of family or financial obligations that must be met. And maybe the right opportunity just hasn't been given them. So how do you find the right opportunities to make your life richer and do more of what you love to do? Well, the first thing is to learn to follow the right impression. Now, you may think that following a hunch or a gut feeling or an inner voice isn't a matter of science. But following impressions have been part of medical and psychological research for some time. In a recent observational study of doctors and their diagnosis of children, researchers watched and recorded the doctor's intuitive response upon first contact with the patients, meaning their gut hunch. The diagnosis of the patient was then also recorded, and the results were interesting. Most often, the initial impression matched the diagnosis. However, most interesting was what researchers found in the diagnosis of patients who had a serious illness that wasn't diagnosed through the first clinical assessment. These were the more difficult cases. Of these, 44% of the time, the initial impressions or gut hunch of the doctor turned out to be correct. And it was also the impression of the doctor that sustained the investigation until a diagnosis was made and allowed for a potentially life-saving solution. I thought this was fascinating, that almost half the time the impression was not only right, but also was the energy, the reason the doctor followed through until an eventual diagnosis was made. Following impressions give us energy and perseverance. What enabled these doctors to have the impression and the faith in that impression to follow it? Well, the same science suggests that those who have positive curiosity and attention towards something tend to be more accurate in following the right impression and ignoring inaccurate impressions. Positively seeking has an energy that is a magnet for good impressions. In a recent article published in the Journal of Psychological Science, researchers came up with a series of experiments to see how impressions work and if people follow them. In their series of experiments, researchers showed college students black and white images of dots moving around on one half of a computer screen. The students were asked to determine whether the dots were moving left or right, and as they made their decision, they saw on the other half of the computer screen a bright, flashing square of color. But sometimes, in this colorful square, the researchers embedded an image to evoke an emotional response. The images included those with positive emotions, such as a puppy or a baby, and those with negatives, such as a gun or a snake. However, the students didn't realize the images were there because they flashed at speeds too fast to be consciously perceived. 
and the results were fascinating. When shown the positive images, students were more accurate in determining the way the dots were moving, responded faster, and were more confident in their selection. The point is that when we feel positive, we make better decisions. We follow our impressions better. You see, it's easy to get caught in a rut in our business or our job or our day-to-day work. We begin to focus on the mundane or the difficult part of our job. And when we do, it robs us of our positivity, our ability to get and follow the right impressions. And this makes sense, right? You see, when we're focused on the negative, the thoughts that most often come our way are both habitual and energy deflating. And we'd be surprised how much positive energy and good impressions are related. In my experience, they are almost perfectly correlated. When I write, it's incredible how many more impressions come my way when I'm filled with positive energy or I'm curious about a topic. This is the same in anything we do in life. Positive energy and curiosity towards something automatically brings the right impressions to bear. When we identify something significant, and deserving of our energy and curiosity, something bigger than our own selves, we live inspired. Our personal growth does expand in direct proportion to our personal energy towards something good. Now, the second way we become better at following the right impressions is to get into the habit of following those impressions. I believe so many opportunities pass us by in life and in business because we don't follow our impressions or we're slow in following them. When my mother was 16, one Sunday in Sunday school class, her teacher taught the concept of love. And she invited all the youth in the class to go home and tell their parents they loved them. Now, my mother listened and felt impressed to do what her teacher had asked her to do. But for mom, it was going to be unusually difficult. After the class ended, she waited for her classmates to leave, and then she said to the teacher, I can't do what you asked me to do. I can't tell my father I love him. You see, at the time, my grandfather was a mechanic on an army base. He was often rough, gruff, and mean like you'd expect from an army mechanic. And at the time, I love you was not something they said to each other in their family. Well, the teacher said, you have to do it. Your father, especially your father, needs to hear those words from you. He deserves your unconditional love. So my mom went home, and all week the words of her teacher stayed with her. Finally, on Saturday night, knowing she would be facing her teacher the next day, my mom found her courage. My grandfather had just walked into the kitchen to put out a cigarette, and my mom got up the courage and blurted out the words, Dad, I have something to tell you. I love you. With those words, my grandfather turned around with his back towards my mom and leaned against the refrigerator with his head bowed down. My mom thought he was angry. He just stood there, back turned, head down. Then my big burly grandfather turned around and he was crying. My mom hesitated and she stepped over to him and he wrapped his arms around her and said, I love you too. As long as she could remember, this was the first time he had hugged her and said those words to her. It was then, with those words, my grandfather's heart began to soften. Years later, when I would visit my grandfather, the first thing he did was hug me and told me he loved me. And when I knew him, he was a faithful and good man. 
And I wonder what would have happened if my mother had not followed the impression that came to her as she listened to her Sunday school teacher. My mother followed the right impressions in her life. And in her life, the result was miraculous in many ways. If an impression came her way, she was apt to act and act deliberately. Following our impressions or not following impressions does become a habit. And it doesn't mean following every random thought that passes through our brain, but it does mean using our educated self to know when to follow the right impressions. And I believe that same educated self is what gives us right rather than wrong impressions. If you want a good example of how your educated self enables you to follow the right impression, just go back to January 15th, 2009. U.S. Airways Flight 1549 was speeding down the runway at New York's LaGuardia Airport, about to take off on its way to Charlotte, North Carolina. The Airbus 320 had 155 passengers aboard, and at an altitude of 2,800 feet and climbing, the plane struck a flock of Canadian geese. Several geese flew directly into the engines, and the passengers heard several very loud bangs and flames shot from the engines. Captain Sullenberger immediately realized both engines were shut down. The aircraft climbed for about another 19 seconds at an airspeed of 185 miles an hour, and Captain Sully radioed a mayday to New York Radar Approach Control. The plane started to descend with no power, accelerating to 240 miles an hour. And the conversation with air traffic control was quick and professional. We're turning back to LaGuardia, was Sully's first call. After receiving directions from the tower, Sully is heard to say, unable. Sully then asks for options. Permission was given for Teterboro Airport. During this time, just a matter of seconds, Sullenberger was assessing the situation. He could try and make it to an airport, but there was no safe landing zone between him and the airports. If the plane couldn't glide that far, it meant certain death. Captain Soley had an impression that he couldn't make it to the airport, but he could land in the Hudson River safely. What inspired that impression? Well, Solenberger had a C badge in gliding, which is the third in a series of ABC ratings. Gliding or soaring is a relatively small aviation niche where pilots learn to fly a small and powered aircraft called a glider. These specialized planes are either towed into the air by powered planes or launched by ground vehicles or winches, much like a kite. And staying aloft means watching the air and ground for potential sources of lift. A city or town, for example, tends to release rising hot air, and mountain ranges can whip winds upwards in waves. When seeing the news report on the day of the emergency landing of Sully's plane, one of the country's most renowned glider instructors said, whoever the pilot was, he was a glider. He knew a glider would have the impression to put the plane down in the river. 90 seconds after deciding to land in the Hudson, the plane made an unpowered landing in the Hudson River. All of the passengers survived with only a few injured. Sully had ditched near boats, which facilitated the rescue, and two New York ferries arrived within minutes to help rescue all the passengers. You see, it was his gliding and other experience that allowed the right impression to speak louder than others to Captain Sully.
It was his educated self that knew which impression to follow. You can imagine a less experienced pilot, right? Making the decision to shoot for a nearby airport only to fall short landing in one of the surrounding communities. The same goes for us. It's our educated selves that give us the right impressions to follow. Now, I have a number of friends who work together building their own business, and I've noticed something about them. Those that are curious and energized and positive about becoming better are coachable and take opportunities to learn and grow. These people are filled with impressions. And as a result, their business grows faster, they make better decisions, and they're happier in the process. In fact, ask these people if they're following their bliss, and most likely they will say yes. Listening to these Open Your Eyes podcasts and other uplifting material is an example of one way to educate yourself and create more of the right impressions in your life. As you listen and as impressions come your way, don't lose them. Write them down and return to them often. What I've learned is impressions are fleeting. They'll come, and if we seize them, think on them, write them down, and make plans for following through, they can bless our life. Other times, impressions come our way. We like the impressions, but we neither act nor write them down, and they're lost. Nowadays, recording your impressions are easy. I have an Apple iPhone, and when I want to record an impression, I just tell Siri to record this in notes, and then I save the impression. And she automatically updates my notes with the latest impression. Now, not every impression I record is useful, but most are. In fact, the impression to do a podcast and many of the topics we discuss are the results of good and right impressions that have come my way. If you're building a business, you will get impressions throughout your day. Who to call, what to say, items of important follow-up, a new tactic, or something to research. If you record these impressions and review them regularly, watch how much better you will be. Things will turn for your good. So as we come to an end today, pay attention to your impressions. Get curious and engaged in your work or the work of the day. Let who you are and what you're passionate about define you rather than your job or title. And most of all, follow your impressions. Educate yourself and record the impressions as they come your way and watch how much more inspired you, your business, and your daily walk will be moving forward. Thanks for being here today. We'll talk about the next steps to opening your eyes in an upcoming podcast. I look forward to being with you again soon.